Before we launch into this beautiful essay by Desiree Helligers, I want to give you a little bit of a taste of Chris Hedges when it comes to AOC. Like me, you probably have some shit-lib friends who still are trying to defend her, but many of those shit-lib friends trust Chris Hedges' voice. So if you get a chance, find this little clip on the Jimmy Dore Show and show it to your shit-lib friends over and over and over. This episode of the Jimmy Dore Show is called America Has the Tinder to Ignite Social Uprising, Chris Hedges. We can't really see the title of this clip because of YouTube's disclaimer underneath it. Yes, the Electoral College has confirmed Joe Biden as president-elect. That doesn't mean it's legitimate. Uh, and, and they'll use the outliers like uh, Alex Jones, you know, and I'm no friend of Alex Jones, but they'll use Alex Jones, they'll use Trump to essentially justify this control. But remember, they're doing two things. They're, they're censoring voices, and, and the Democratic Party has a particular uh, anger towards the real left because the real left calls them out yes. for who they are, the way you do with AOC. Um, although I didn't expect much from AOC. Uh, AOC is uh, turned into a, you know, a, a creature, a political creature like all of them, uh, totally subservient to Nancy Pelosi, who's kind of the wicked witch of the West. Um, so, uh, but but the, the the Democratic Party is going to be much harsh, harsher on the left than the Trump administration yes. because the real left is a threat to them in a way that it wasn't to Trump. This also can help you when you're explaining to your shit-lib friends that there's no reason for them whatever to call themselves leftists. They aren't leftists. So now you may want to go get your Kleenex box ready. Victor Jara's Hands, an anti-fascist memoir festo and brief personal history of neoliberalism by Desiree Helligers. You can easily carbon date your friends on Facebook based on where they were during any major milestone in U.S. history. As a university professor teaching now for decades at what we euphemistically call a land-grant university, many of my students these days were born after 9-11 into the U.S.'s seemingly endless war on terror. It's a war that some of their family members died in, but one that few of them seem to know much about. Last month, older friends on Facebook who came of age in the 1960s were busy reflecting on what they were doing when they heard the news that JFK had been assassinated. Personally, I had only recently graduated from diapers to plastic pants and was likely occupied with important matters like trying to do the twist in front of the TV while my grandmother clapped and sloshed scotch all over her TV table. But like most Americans who have not washed down decades of Rush Limbaugh with great swigs of QAnon Kool-Aid, I can't help but wonder how we will look back at this moment in history. Is this the moment we turn the tide, or is it a brief respite from the country's descent into full-blown fascism? The latter scenario would mean, of course, full speed ahead into climate collapse, given that the U.S. military is hands down the single largest carbon emissions machine on the planet, and our collective dust speck is already close to the boiling point. I have to break in here and quibble just a little bit. We entered full-blown fascism long before Donald Trump arrived on the scene. Back to the story. May you live in interesting times. You got that right. These times are so interesting that we've had a lame duck president holed up in the White House consulting with his legal team from the land of malevolent misfit toys about the possibilities for declaring martial law to overturn the results of the election, and it's not the top story. That stands to reason, I guess, when you've got a pandemic death count equivalent of 100 9-11s and across the country bodies stacking up like cordwood in overstuffed mobile morgue units. 
It's hard to sustain the level of national alert so many of us felt during the run-up to the election and the vote count when Trump's automatic weapon-waving goon squads were busy battering on windows at voting precincts or skywriting surrender Gretchen over the Michigan State House. A meme was making the rounds at the time on Facebook, American politics as night of the living dead. Personally, I was starting to feel like an insomnia-addled Lady Macbeth who'd been mainlining Halloween candy for days, and as in all things, I blamed my lovely spouse who had shopped for Halloween candy like he was stocking up for Y2K. Let me stop here for a second and say it's not fair to call Trump supporters automatic weapon-waving goon squads. That's not the main point of this article, so I'm not going to spend much time on it, but I just want to point it out as it goes by. We sound elitist and condescending when we characterize Trump supporters that way. When I think we should think of people on both sides of the political aisle, whether they're Trump supporters or not, as fellow populists who want to solve our country's economic problems. This is, after all, a university professor, and it's very easy to sound snarky and condescending. And saying Trump's automatic weapon-waving goon squads is snarky and condescending. Back to the story. Like me, my spouse knows how to brace for the worst, a skill we bonded over when we met organizing against the Second Gulf War. One of the biggest misconceptions about the anti-war movement, if such a thing exists right now, is that peace activists somehow hate veterans. Since well before the war in Vietnam, the U.S. military has given veterans critical insight into the American war machine, along with heavy helpings of trauma and self-loathing. Some of my favorite peace activists are veterans, my spouse chief and foremost among them. We bonded, organizing protests and staging a die-in in front of the Portland Federal Building. It was one of those, what are you doing after the die-in kinds of courtships. I'll break in and say that that reminded me immediately of Danny Sherson, one of our recent guests, an anti-war veteran. On with the story. I don't remember exactly when I began thinking of Victor Jara's hands and how they'd been crushed by Chilean soldiers in the early days of the U.S.-sponsored Chilean coup in 1973. I do know, though, that as my spouse and I took a left turn to drop our ballots off at our local library, Victor Jara had been on both of our minds. It wasn't a total coincidence, given that only a day or two before, on October 25th, Chileans had voted overwhelmingly in favor of drafting a new constitution. The referendum was a concession wrenched from President Sebastián Piñera following a year of street protests and civil unrest. The vote was a definitive kiss-off to the Chilean constitution of 1980 enacted under the regime of General Augusto Pinochet. Living in the U.S., you'd never know that Chile had had its own national disaster on September 11th, nearly three decades before the U.S. Not many Americans can define neoliberalism, let alone know that on September 11th, 1973, it was ushered into Chile by U.S.-made tanks and at the butt of U.S.-made guns, automatic weapons of the sort Trump's very fine friends never seem to tire of waving. Okay, let me break in again and say that there are black militias who are not Trump's very fine friends who also like to wave automatic weapons around. And personally, I believe that when we overthrow our government, we're going to need some of those. But back to the story. And not at all unlike the militarized Portland police and the BORTAC and Homeland Security armies that spent all summer pounding and traumatizing friends of mine in the streets of Portland and spraying them with chemical weapons long ago judged too dangerous to use in war, the health effects being so severe and long term. 
It was on September 11, 1973, that Richard Nixon and his henchman Henry Kissinger swept Pinochet to power as the frontman for the U.S.-sponsored experiment in neoliberalism. A folk singer-songwriter, often referred to as Chile's Bob Dylan, Victor Jara would be the most visible of more than 3,000 Chileans executed by Pinochet's death squads in September as the coup began. You can get a quick overview of the horrors that the U.S. helped unleash on Chileans in the 1970s by watching the 2019 Netflix documentary, Massacre at the Stadium. Shortly after Pinochet's reign of terror began, an estimated 5,000 were detained at a Santiago stadium, then named Estadio Chile, and since renamed Estadio Victor Jara, and another 20,000 at the Estadio Nacional across town. Professors, students, musicians, farm and factory workers were crowded shoulder to shoulder and sorted into lines to live or die, to be interrogated, beaten, tortured, and or murdered. At Estadio Chile, more than 70 were executed on site, while others were disappeared. Today, a quote painted on the back of the Estadio Nacional reads, Un pueblo sin memoria es un pueblo sin futuro. A people without memory are a people without a future. Hara grew up poor in a family of farm workers, but went on to become a theater director and teacher and to achieve international visibility with songs like Manifesto, which speaks to Hara's understanding of art as a critical tool in struggles for justice as an instrument of decolonizing resistance of spiritual, material, and ecological liberation. love of singing or because I have a good voice, sang Hara, I sing because my guitar has both feeling and reason. It has a heart of earth and the wings of a dove. Hara's music was inspired by his mother, Amanda Martinez's love of folk music rooted in her indigenous Mapuche heritage. His music was also shaped by a Catholic education that included a brief period in the seminary. 
Haras music was embraced in the 1960s and 70s by American folk heavies like Pete Seeger and Joan Baez. Arlo Guthrie and Holly Near are among the American songwriters who have since written tribute songs. In the run-up to the election of Allende, Hara's version of the song Venceremos, or We Will Overcome, became the anthem of Allende's popular unity coalition and also figured centrally in eyewitness accounts of Hara's death. Pinochet's U.S.-supported forces beat and tortured him, smashing his wrists. They made sure to go after the part of his body that did them the most damage. At some point in the stadium, Hara reportedly sang to the other prisoners, Vinceremos, a song he'd adapted with new lyrics that had egged Allende onto victory. Before he was executed, shot more than 40 times by Pinochet's U.S.-funded forces, Hara wrote his final song. What horror the face of fascism creates. They carry out their plans with knife-like precision. Nothing matters to them. To them, blood equals medals. Slaughter is an act of heroism. O oh God, is this the world that you created? No human cost was too high to pay to usher in neoliberalism to eviscerate the gains that labor had made under Allende's popular unity coalition and to maintain a steady flow of cheap copper, fruit, and fish to the U.S. under the auspices of trade liberalization. The new constitution passed under Pinochet's dictatorship rolled back the reforms instituted under Allende. It expanded the power of the presidency and enshrined private property and corporate profits over social needs. Pinochet rolled back taxes on corporations and the wealthy and eliminated a host of government services. State-owned companies, public housing, education, health care, and pensions were all privatized, turned into profit centers for corporations and the wealthy. The Constitution, written under Pinochet, limited reforms and the gap today between rich and poor in Chile is one of the highest in Latin America. Hara may be technically dead, but if you do a bit of digging around on the internet, you'll see evidence of his long afterlife. Hence the title of a documentary about his impact on musicians in particular, The Resurrection of Victor Hara. Tens of thousands of hands have gone on playing Hara's songs in the nearly 50 years since his torture and murder in the stadium. Hara, says Chilean musician Horacio Salinas in the documentary, could create a ceremonial effect with his music. On YouTube, you can find countless videos of musicians playing Hara's songs and songs written in tribute to him, including my personal favorite, Victor Hara's Hands by Joey Burns of the Tucson-based indie rock band Calexico, sung alternately in Spanish and English. Songs of the birds like hands call the earth to witness sever from fear before taking flight. In the stadium, there are 5,000 of us in this small part of the city. 5,000 of us here. I wonder how many of us altogether in the cities, in the whole country. In this place alone are 10,000 hands which plant seeds and make the factories run. How much humanity exposed to hunger, cold, panic, pain, moral pressure, terror, and madness. Six of us were lost, as if among the stars of space. One dead, another beaten as I never could have believed a human being could be beaten. The other four wanted to end their terror. One 
jumping into emptiness. Another, beating his head against a wall. But all of them, with the fixed look of death. What horror the face of fascism creates. They carry out their plans with the precision of knives. Nothing matters to them. To them, blood equals medals. Slaughter is an act of heroism. Oh God, is this the world that you created? And some people still want to maintain that fascism started under Donald Trump. This fascism right here, this is US fascism. This brutality is not in Nazi Germany. This terrorism is not in Mussolini's Italy. This is American-style fascism exported to Chile. Back to the story. And for the past year, as across the streets of the U.S., Black Lives Matter activists have demanded justice for George Floyd and the defunding of police departments that consume the lion's share of city budgets across the country, Hara has been resurrected again and again in an all-star Chilean studio recording and on the streets of Chile. At an October 25, 2019 march in Santiago with a crowd estimated at more than a million, people sang together Hara's anti-war anthem, El Derecho de Vivir en Paz, or The Right to Live in Peace, while countless people played along on the guitar. This past year, workers in Chile have risen up again to demand a world in which workers do more than just struggle to survive, one in which everyone has a right to not just bread, but roses, music, and art. Over the past year, Chilean women have created their own distinctive woman-centered actions on the streets of Chile, with thousands collectively performing the song Un Violador en Tu Camino, or A Rapist in Your Path, in a public right of resistance to rape culture and femicide. The song was inspired by the work of the renowned Argentinian-Brazilian feminist anthropologist-slash-bioethicist Rita Lauro Segato, the song calls out the role of police and the courts in perpetrating and perpetuating sexual violence that repeats, on a smaller scale, the systemic rape and torture of women that happened under Pinochet and that is a central feature of fascism. If the goal in Chile, as it would be later in Iraq, was, as Naomi Klein has argued, to disorient or shock the country into submitting to a radically different and patently exploitative economic system, the system that was imposed was also more rigidly patriarchal. Sexual violence and degradation were integral parts of Pinochet's fascist playbook. But as Chileans battle the legacy of Pinochet, this right of feminist resistance, together with other long-standing organizing, is propelling Chile to break new ground internationally. Chile will be the first country in the world with a constitutional assembly comprised equally of women and men. Meanwhile, in the United States, our president-elect is a racist rapist. This legacy of Pinochet is a U.S. legacy. Joe Biden has a part of it. That's what makes it especially ironic that his diverse cabinet is full of people who will perpetuate this kind of fascism. Bitter irony. Back to the story. While the neoliberal experiment began in Chile in 1973 with tanks and guns, and on a smaller scale in New York City with the manufactured financial crisis of 1975, Reagan would become its American figurehead, its presidential mad social scientist. 
I was in my second year at Georgetown when Reagan was inaugurated, and I can remember exactly where I was when Reagan was elected 40 years ago on November 4, 1980. I was at the Republican election watch party at some Tony DC hotel, the details documented somewhere in a newspaper article buried deep in my office closet. In the fall of 1980, I was in my second year writing for the more liberal of Georgetown's two student newspapers, The Voice. Whether the story was assigned to me, or I chose it out of some perverse curiosity, or out of an unshakable conviction that Republicans had better hors d'oeuvre, I can't quite remember. While I wasn't the most savvy reporter at the time, I can say that voting for Reagan was as unthinkable to me then as now. And if memory serves, I covered the election party with all the rhetorical gravitas of a monkey throwing shit at their new zookeepers. Skipping ahead, though my siblings and I were all given four years of free tuition in the 1980s, you didn't have to have a scholarship or a parent who was a professor to walk away from a four-year degree debt-free or close to it. In 1983, the year I graduated, tuition at a public university barely topped a thousand a year, but public universities had already been on Reagan's hit list in the 1960s when he was governor of California, and students at Berkeley were busy mobilizing for free speech, civil rights, and an end to the Vietnam War. To Reagan, Berkeley students were nothing more than unruly welfare bums, free tuition was their dole, and Reagan was hell-bent on sending them back to work. Defunding higher education and slapping students with debt was, Reagan understood, a path to rein in beatniks, radicals, and filthy speech advocates. Today, California spends more money incarcerating people than it does educating them, from K-12 through through university. In the U.S. today, tuition at public universities is 10 times higher than it was when I graduated in 1983. Inflation counts for less than a third of the increase. Over the past 40 years, public universities have been steadily transformed into student debt delivery machines operated on the backs of debt-strapped adjuncts. A couple of days ago, dear viewers and listeners, we talked about the adjunctification of the public university. University presidents who routinely make five times more than governors sell students as customers on the fiction that history, along with literature, women's studies, comparative ethnic studies, philosophy, and the arts, are frivolous luxuries we can no longer afford to fully fund. The Gipper might be pleased today to see 18 to 22 year olds signing off on documents they'd need MBAs in finance to understand and then emerging as desperate and pliable indentured servants for corporations. Even pre-COVID, 48% of university students in the U.S. were at risk of or already experiencing houselessness. Skipping ahead again. If speeches by Martin Luther King Jr. were high school seniors, hands down the one voted least likely to be read by American school children would be his 1967 sermon, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break the Silence. As radical as the military-industrial complex might sound the first time Americans hear it, the term wasn't the demon spawn of Karl Marx or the weather underground. President Dwight D. Eisenhower's speechwriter coined the term in the farewell speech he wrote for him. This was in 1961, back when the orderly succession of putatively democratically elected presidents was a given in the U.S., no matter how many coups Eisenhower and the Dulles brothers had busied themselves with orchestrating in Guatemala, Iran, Indonesia, the Philippines, and God and historians only nowhere else. Jack and Jackie and their Camelot myth-making press machine were about to sweep into the White House, followed by more military advisors and troops into Vietnam. 
MLK would paint the consequences of the military-industrial complex in far starker, more vivid, human, and urgent terms than Eisenhower. The U.S., Dr. King seems to have suggested, was a war junkie, and it was a given that war and racism went hand in hand. The Vietnam War, King argued, was poisoning the country with racism and hatred. This business of burning human beings with napalm or filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. The sniper fire that cut King down exactly a year later to the day, on April 4, 1968, in Memphis, likely said as much about his 1967 speech as it did his support for Memphis sanitation workers. In his 1967 speech, King famously compared the war in Vietnam to a demonic, destructive suction tube that vacuumed up funds that might have otherwise gone to LBJ's war on poverty. If you want to get a really good idea of how much war just cost the U.S. in the time it took you to read this article, check out the National Priorities Project. The military budget for 2020 alone at $738 billion would be enough to provide 24.6 million year-long hospital stays for COVID-19 patients, 20.96 million four-year scholarships for university students, or 23.65 million people receiving $600 weekly unemployment insurance payments for one year. There's plenty of money, it's just helping the super rich who are profiting at all our expenses. King condemned in no uncertain terms the massive aerial spraying of the defoliant Agent Orange as akin to Nazi medical experimentation. What do the Vietnamese think as we test out our latest weapons on them? asked King. Just as Germans tested out new medicine and new tortures in the concentration camps of Europe. Today in the U.S., the test subjects are the kids in Detroit drinking water contaminated with lead, while Nestle's is pumping, bottling, and profiting to the tune of 400 gallons a minute of fresh Michigan water. The water protectors at Standing Rock drenched for months with pepper spray, tear gas, and reportedly other chemical agents, along with water in freezing and sub-zero temperatures. The Black Lives Matter activists sprayed, sprayed along with hundreds of houseless people all summer on the streets of Portland with chemical weapons banned for use in war. The black indigenous people of color, elderly, and people with disabilities dying at vastly higher rates of COVID-19. And meanwhile, Vietnam is witnessing the third generation born with Agent Orange-related health effects, from missing eyes and limbs to spinal bifida and severe intellectual disabilities. The Middle East is littered with depleted uranium, cancer rates are soaring, and babies are born with a wide range of congenital anomalies. By 1967, King had struck up a friendship with the Vietnamese Buddhist monk Dish Nhat Hanh, and by 67, King, like every other major organizer in the civil rights movement, had been pegged by the FBI as a communist. Make of it what you will, it seems likely to me that given enough time on earth, King and Hara might have had long talks, written songs together, formed a fast and deep friendship. In his song Derecho de Vivir en Paz, or The Right to Live in Peace, released on his 1971 album, Hara wrote of Indochina, the place beyond the wide sea where they ruined the flower with genocide and napalm. He and King were definitely on the same page about the Vietnam War and so much more. Feminists in particular have aptly spoken of our collective relationship to Trump as akin to domestic or intimate partner violence with Trump a gaslighting batterer, 
just as the Clinton-Obama-DNC military intelligence complex deep state is. That was me if you couldn't tell. But as metaphors go, battering and gaslighting are also fitting descriptions of the Chicago boys' neoliberal magic trick brought into Chile and later the Middle East with guns and tanks. It's the magic trick ordinary Americans have watched this year as we've been fleeced of taxes that have gone to fatten the unimaginable wealth of a handful of billionaires and to endless weapons and wars that have made the U.S. the hands-down leader of the global arms trade. Martin Luther King Jr. warned us in 1967 that a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Fifty years later, at the end of the Trump presidency, we seem to be rapidly approaching garlic and wooden steak territory. Still, too many Democrats are breathing a sigh of relief now that the batterer-in-chief has been handed his eviction papers and they are looking to Biden as our collective white knight, our national pater familias. But anyone who knows anything about the dynamics of battering will tell you that the myth of the white knight is a racist and patriarchal setup for repeating the cycle of abuse. We're sitting now on the razor's edge of fascism, and fascism isn't interested in electoral cycles. We can't count on having another four years to sort the situation out. And I've made the argument, dear viewers and listeners, that Biden is every bit the fascist that Trump is, and in many ways is worse. The Roots Action No Honeymoon for Biden campaign, embraced by Nina Turner, recognizes the urgency of the situation and would go a long way toward undoing the damage done by 50 years of neoliberalism. This is me telling Nina Turner something. I think it would go even farther if you abandoned the Democratic Party right now. Back to the story. It would shift funds from militarism and mass incarceration to universal health care and a more inclusive multiracial Green New Deal that would fund free higher education. The campaign also calls for a $15 federal minimum wage and for Biden to cancel student debt across the board. Research has shown that wiping out existing student debt would be a shot in the arm for the economy. We need to pull back from our domestic and global cycle of battering and make government work for working people if we are going to stop a freefall into fascism and climate chaos. Well, I got news for you, sister. Biden isn't the one who's going to do that. Biden is in the pocket of the neoliberals. Biden is in the pocket of the assholes who crushed Victor Jara's hands. Back to the conclusion. Finally, there are a lot of lessons the U.S. could draw from the Chilean fight against fascism and the legacy of Pinochet. The global spark that Las Tesis set off this past year with street performances that drew thousands of women to witness collectively to their shared experience of sexual harassment and assault is a testimony to the power of art to mobilize resistance and speak truth to power. And the immortal life of Victor Jara, his presence this past year on the streets of Santiago, where thousands of hands fluttered across guitars, testifies to the power of art to preserve history even in the face of guns, tanks, and bullets bent on wiping it out. Now more than ever, we need to demand reinvestment in the arts, from K-12 to higher education. To paraphrase the quote Woody Guthrie famously scrawled across his guitar, we need art to kill fascism. What better reminder than the hollow man in the White House, than either hollow man in the White House, of the frustration life without art generates. We need art to foster empathy, to remind us of our collective humanity, to preserve in our national memory records of those who stood for justice and those who collaborated to undermine it. We need art to preserve history, to sustain and energize us, to give us courage for the long struggle ahead.